Good morning. My name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Calvary, and it's an honor to be here this morning and to open God's Word together. We're continuing in our Luke series, and really our desire through this series is to look at the life and ministry of Jesus. And wherever you come in this morning, whether you've come from a place where you've put your faith in Jesus and you're growing in your faith, or you haven't yet come to the place of trusting Christ, our hope for you through this series is that your certainty, your confidence in Jesus and the hope that we have in him would grow as we look at his life and the stories that we get recorded for us in the book of Luke. Now, in our culture, both inside and outside the church, we have a sense of what it means to be righteous. We, we don't always use the language of righteous. Sometimes we would say, what does it mean to be a good person or a moral person or a holy person? Uh, you, you could substitute the word righteous also with just, to be a just person, someone who's uh, lives out a life of justice, to be just and righteous is getting at the same meaning. So within the church, we might look at righteousness and we would see someone who's humble, who engages with the Lord in prayer, who loves those around them, who's, who's active and cares for the vulnerable in society, seeks justice in the world. We might say that's a righteous person. But even in our culture at large, we have a sense of what does it mean to be a righteous person? We have a political season right now and uh, elections coming up. And if you were to talk to different people, you'd probably get a different sense of what does it mean to be oriented towards justice or righteousness in our world. And based on who you talked to and the questions you discussed, you'd get various views of what does it mean to truly be a righteous person, uh, to walk in humility, to seek what is right in the world. And the way you could think about it too is we have a sense of righteousness in our culture righteousness in our culture. And you can see it on the negative end too. What are people afraid of being exposed for? What are, what are people afraid of coming out about them that would bring shame upon them? In that negative sense, that gives you a sense that we have a sense of what does it mean to be a righteous person? But as you know, often our views of what does it mean to be righteous may be competing. People have, may, may have various views of what it truly means to be a righteous person. And that's what we're gonna see in our passage today is that there are two very different views of righteousness. There's the righteousness of the religious leaders who are approaching Jesus in the story, or who are around Jesus in the story, and there's the righteousness of Jesus. And we're going to see that there's really this battle, this competition of these two righteousnesses that are very different. And what we're going to see through this story is that these religious leaders are going to reject Christ and his righteousness for their own view of righteousness, due to their pride, due to the fact that they love people's approval. And they have this own sense of righteousness that Jesus is confronting. And so what we're gonna do through this text is we're gonna look at these two views of righteousness. This is Luke 11, verses 37 to 54. You can open up there. Luke 11, 37 to 54. There's Bible in the seat in front of you as well if you need a Bible, and the verses will be on the screen. But coming out of this passage, as we look at this confrontation between these two righteousnesses, and we're going to see the way that these religious leaders respond, we really want to ask the question, how do we respond when we're confronted with Christ? Looking at the story of these religious leaders and how they respond confronted with his teaching, how, how are we going to respond when we're confronted with Christ and his righteousness as we read of it this morning? So... We'll begin in verse 37, and then our action begins like this. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished 
to see that he did not first wash before dinner. Now, there was an expectation this religious leader had of Jesus and that he was expecting that Jesus was going to come to dinner and he was going to do this ceremonial washing. Now, this wasn't a washing like we would often do before dinner where we're just making sure to get the dirt off our hands and to be sanitary. That's important, but that's not what this one is. This is a washing that's more of a ceremonial religious washing. So it's, it's really about the purity and the holiness of who you are as a person. And we see in this passage, this religious leader, this Pharisee, is astonished. They were experts um, at observing the law. They would have tried it as closely as they could, hold to the law of Moses. But they had also added these laws around God's law about how you should live. And this is one of those additional added laws that they thought this is what it means to be a really righteous person. You wash your hands according to the tradition that's been handed down. And so we get this story where you begin to see the two competing views of righteousness as a Pharisee is astonished at the filth of Jesus's hands. But it's, it's really quite ironic because no one has actually true, more truly pure, clean hands than Jesus. Psalm 24, three to four says this. It says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? The question is essentially, who, who's able to dwell in the presence of God? And the answer is given. Who can dwell in the presence of God? Who can approach him? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. So here's Jesus with, with cleaner hands, a purer heart than anyone. And yet the Pharisee is astonished at the filth of his hands. And so in verses 39 to 40, the story goes on. It says, and the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? Imagine what Jesus is saying here for a moment. So you, you go to your friend's house for dinner, and they set out the bowls and the plates, and the food all comes out, but you realize that at your spot, you're missing a bowl. So if you imagine your friend, they go over, they reach into their dishwasher, and they pull it down, you, you assume, oh, surely they just ran a load in their dishwasher and it's clean. But as they pull out the bowl, you realize that bowl is still dirty. And they bring it over, and they wash the outside of the bowl for you. They clean it off and they put it down in your place. But as you look down, you see there's still bits of food in it, there's still scraps in it, and it's filthy, except for the place where the dog licked it. <laughs> and Jesus is saying, you religious leaders, this is what your righteousness is like. You, you, you wash the hands, you, you go about these exterior ceremonies, but inside your hearts are full of greed. You love money. You love money and all sorts of wicked things, but didn't God make both? Doesn't God care about both the heart, the inside and the outside, not just the external? And so in verse 41, Jesus says this. He says, but give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything will be clean for you. Now, alms are a gift of charity to the poor. And this text is a bit challenging, but... But it seems like Jesus is saying something like this. You Pharisees, you religious leaders, you're very focused on the outside. You're very focused on appearances and how people see you. But if you want to truly be righteous, do this. Forsake your love of money, 
Forsake your greed, forsake these things, and rather than focusing on the exterior, give yourself to the poor. Give from within to the poor. Seek true justice and righteousness from the heart. And if you do that, everything's clean. You don't need to walk around always wondering about cleanliness and uncleanliness. If you do that, if you order your heart rightly, all things will be clean for you. And so we see these two competing views. We, We see this righteousness, which is focused on the exteriors, and we see the righteousness of Christ. And and as we go on in this passage, what we're going to see is, as the Pharisee was astonished at the filth of Jesus' hand, at how he doesn't meet his righteous standards, what we're going to see is these two competing views of righteousness. As Jesus calls out the religious leaders for their way of seeking righteousness. And these are called the woes. There's going to be three woes to the Pharisees and three woes to the lawyers. Now, Pharisees were followers of the law of Moses, and lawyers were teachers of the law. Some of the Pharisees would have also been lawyers during this time. And so Jesus is going to call out his pronouncements, which are, the woes are in a sense of judgment, but they would also, I think, hold within them the sense of grief sadness over the hardness of the heart that Jesus is talking to in this passage. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at the, the unrighteousness or the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes, and we're going to compare that with the righteousness of Jesus. And then we're going to look at how do they respond when confronted with Christ, and how do we then respond as those who are confronted with the righteousness of Christ. And so verse 1 is in verse 42. Jesus says, but woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Now a tithe is giving a tenth of what you have to the Lord. And Jesus is saying, you tithe your herbs. You're going above and beyond in your expectations. And he doesn't say that's wrong for them to do. He says, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. But while spending this meticulous, scrupulous time on this spiritual activity, what they've actually been neglected is justice. They've neglected caring for those who they should be caring for. They've they've neglected justice and the love of God. The way you could think about it is like this. It's almost as though they're driving, and they're so afraid of going over the speed limit that they're just staring at the speedometer. And as you stare at the speedometer and you're going on the road, you don't even look at the road while you drive. And you you end up crashing or causing havoc. The idea is that you can become so focused on certain aspects that you miss the whole picture. And Jesus says, it's it's fine for them to tie these things. These you ought to have done, but not to have neglected the others. And so there's a righteousness that loses focus of what's at the true heart of God's law. But consider how Jesus went about this differently. Jesus says, tells us in Matthew 5, 17 to 18, that he didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, that, that he's going to fulfill the law of God to the dot, to the, the oda, to the smallest point. And yet we see throughout Christ's ministry that he constantly remembers what is most important. And he constantly orders his heart towards the love of God and the love of people. He's willing to do things like heal on the Sabbath that that provoke this religious backlash. 
because he's doing something that's truly just, but it's seen as unjust to those around him. We see that Jesus cares for the poor, that he cares for the outcasts, he cares for the lepers, he cares for the people whom society has rejected, and he seeks justice in its truest sense. And he does one as who's fulfilling the law of God. Now, for us as Christians today, I don't think that our main temptation is that we would forget justice because we spend too much time tithing herbs. Maybe that's you. I, I haven't seen that in our culture much of that sort of meticulous issue being there. But I think there is a warning here as, as we think of the danger of being fixated on spiritual activity the external, while forgetting what's actually truly at the heart of God's law. And to know it's possible for us to get really busy in things that look good on the outside. It's possible for us to be engaged in things that are actually good, Bible studies and gathering together in various ways and going about all sorts of things, but to actually lose the heart, to forget that we're people who are called to live out God's justice in the world, that we're called to truly love God and seek his justice in the world. And so Jesus then, the second woe to the Pharisees says this. He says, woe to you, in verse 43, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Now, these these Pharisees love the approval of people. They love when they walk into the room, they get all this recognition for their religious standing. But you see that Jesus, throughout his ministry, actually rejects the vain glory of people. There's times when they want to give him approval and praise, not truly as he is as the Son of God, but just to go with their own agenda. And Jesus is rejecting this vain glory. And so Jesus is grieved as he looks at these religious leaders about the idea of them taking their religious position and making it a means of self-advancement. The way you could almost think about it is Jesus is here upset with the idea of celebrity rabbis. These leaders who who would make it about their own value, their own worth, their own self-promotion. And so Jesus goes on in verse 44 in the third bowl and he says, Woe to you for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. Now this is really a zinger, but in order to understand it, there's some context that's helpful. An unmarked grave was a grave that was not whitewashed. And you would whitewash a grave in order that when people were going about that, as they were walking, they would see that there's a grave there. Because if you would walk on a grave as a Jew, it would mean that you were ceremonially unclean. And and that's an important thing, especially in this discussion about what does it mean to be really clean and holy and set apart. So you'd become ceremonially unclean if you walked on a grave. And an unmarked grave, you might unknowingly walk on it and therefore become unclean. So think about what Jesus is saying to these religious leaders. You pride yourselves in being those who are set apart and holy and clean to God. You're to be those who make the whole nation clean. But here's what happens. When people come into contact with you and your teaching, they become defiled and contaminated. You're not those who are making holy you're those who are making unholy. They're those who love the approval of people. They're those who have neglected the true heart of God's law. And yet, Christ, when he comes into contact with the unclean, what happens? He makes them clean. He heals the sick. He raises the dead. 
He, he forgives people of their sin. There's Christ in his life is bringing the cleanliness and the hope and the healing of the kingdom of God. He's calling out the religious leaders for failing to do so. And in their pride, seeking other things. So these are his three woes to the Pharisees. And then one of the lawyers who's there, as, hearing, as he's hearing this, says this. Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. Now maybe you'd expect after this that Jesus would say, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. I had no idea that what I was saying could have been offensive. But rather than that, he turns to the lawyers and he says, okay, well, we need to talk as well. And he gives his three woes. As he's, hard, as he's saddened, as he's astonished, as he's grieved over their hardness of heart, he says, woe to you lawyers, verse 46, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Now these lawyers, instead of these experts supposedly in the law of God, but they had added these additional requirements on people beyond what God's law had commanded. In Mark 7, we get an insight into some of these. Mark 7, 3 to 4, Mark gives us a note about some of these things that they had added. It says, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. That word's important there. It's, it's the elders, not the word of God. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. So they've added these laws onto the law of God. They've added these additional requirements. And Jesus is saying, you know what? You lawyers, you add these laws, but you don't lift a finger, which could mean one of two things. Either they don't lift a finger and that they don't help the people they're burdening whatsoever. They don't even lift a finger to help them. Or it could mean that they do this lawyer loop around where they say, this is how you should live. But as the lawyers and the experts, they find this way that they can avoid lifting their finger and really doing anything. But the point is just saying, you're, you're putting these burdens on people without true care for their soul. An illustration that I've heard that I think is helpful about what happens when we add laws onto the law of God is, is if you were to imagine a cow in a pasture. A cow in a pasture has plenty of room to move around, it has plenty of grass to eat, it has water to drink, it has all that it needs. But what you begin to do is this protective fence that's around it is supposed to keep it safe. But you take that protective fence and you continue to bring it in closer and closer and closer, constraining more and more. And it's a fence with an electric shock. And you bring it all the way in to the point where if that cow moves one bit, it's shocked or electrocuted. And all of a sudden, these laws and these expectations become this massive burden that keep it from being able to just live a normal life. And it says, though Jesus is saying something to that effect, that you're loading people with burden after burden after burden. But this is not what God's law has required. And so in Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30, we see the opposite. What, what Jesus actually desires for his people. Not burden after burden, but this is what Jesus says of his desire for his people. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest 
for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Even just think about the challenges, the trials that we have coming in this morning. Who is Jesus and what does he want for you? He wants rest for your soul. He wants for you to come to him that you can have rest and hope and healing and salvation. And one of the questions we could ask is, is this the way we view Jesus? Do we view Jesus as though he's actually one of these lawyers, adding burden upon burden after burden, saying, you know, if I follow Jesus, he's going to keep me from doing the things that I really want to do or from really being in a spot of health and healing and restoration. All the things that I want to do, Jesus is going to restrict. Is that how we view him? Or do we view him as the one who actually came to give us rest for our souls? Because one of the things that we see in this passage is that not only does Jesus desire rest for our souls, but he's actually the one who goes and fights for our rest. He's actually the one who's fighting for us in this passage. In this passage, you see this confrontation between these two righteousness. And you see the anger of Jesus really come out as he preaches these woes. But why is he angry? Is it not because he wants rest? He wants true spiritual rest for his people. And we know that we desperately need it. He doesn't come to give us burden after burden, but rest for our souls. And there absolutely are commandments as we follow God and follow his son, Jesus Christ. But those commandments aren't burdensome. They're actually for our good, to direct and guide our life. So this is the heart that we see of Christ for his people this morning. Then the second woe we'll look at for the lawyers. He says in verses 47 to 51, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed, So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Now what Jesus is calling them out for here is the fact that they have these hardened hearts that aren't willing to hear God's word, but they want it to look like they're willing to hear the word of God. And in a sense, he's calling them out for virtue signaling, saying that we we are those who hear God's word. But he points out, you know why you build prophets or why you build these tombs for the prophets? Because your forefathers killed them. Because they're dead. So you build their tomb to make it look like you're those who receive them. But you're actually just bearing witness that you're like your forefathers who over and over have rejected the word of God. And that you're, you're, he's saying you're essentially the same. You're going to do the very same thing in rejecting the word of God. Which we're going to see because they're also going to reject Christ and his word. He talks about the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. And Abel in Genesis 4 would be the first martyr in the Bible, the first one who is righteously killed because of their faith by his brother Cain. And then Zechariah is a reference most likely to Zechariah who comes up in 2 Chronicles 24, who's a priest who speaks on behalf of God and is also killed. And the point is something like this. From the beginning of the Bible to the, or from the beginning of the Old Testament to the end of the Old Testament, God's spokesmen have been rejected and killed. 
Now, 2 Chronicles is not the end of our Bible uh, today in the 21st century, but for a Jew at this time, it would have actually been on the book end of their Old Testament. So he's saying from beginning to end, this is what we've seen, that the word of God is rejected. And here is Christ, who is the one who the prophets were telling of, who's the fulfillment of all that's been spoken before and is now in their presence. And they're going to show that they really are those who reject God's word because Christ challenging them is going to cause this continuing conflict. And so we see the final woe to the lawyers in verse 52. Jesus says, Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you have hindered those who were entering. So these lawyers are teachers of the word of God. And as teachers, they should have been doing this. Come into the kingdom, opening wide the doors that people would come into God's kingdom, preaching the hope and the message of Christ to come. And yet, rather than that, he says, you're like those who have closed the door. You've rejected, you've hidden the key of knowledge. And you didn't enter yourself, nor would you allow anyone else to enter. And yet here is Christ. And when Christ comes, he does not come as one who closes off the kingdom of God, but he proclaims that the kingdom is here. He invites people into his kingdom. And he's actually known, one of the offenses that's given towards Jesus, one of the things he's credited with is being a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And just think about that for a moment. When, when they think of what are they going to accuse Jesus of, they're going to accuse Jesus that he's a friend of sinners. That's such good news for me and you and us. I mean, that, that Jesus is known as a friend of sinners. And we're now those who have the hope of Christ, who know the word of God. And I just think, how incredible would that be for us to take on and to continue to live out as an identity? Who are we as a church? We're friends of sinners. We we say to people, there is a hope and a life that can be found in Christ. No matter what you come in believing, no matter uh, what you've done in your life, no matter what you wear, no matter what you affiliate yourself with, there is hope and an invitation to walk with Christ and to know his healing and forgiveness and grace. How incredible would that be for us as we go out in our community, as we go into our neighborhoods with our family and our jobs and our schools, for it to be that we are known as people who love those who others may reject. It's an identity that we're called to and Jesus here is, hard, is saddened that these lawyers who have the word of God, and yet in their pride and arrogance and confusion of the word of God, shut people off to it. So this is a heavy teaching that Jesus gives to these lawyers. And how do they respond, the Pharisees and the lawyers? Verse 53 to 54. And he went away from there, and the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him, to catch him in something he might say. So the result of what happens here is that these religious leaders conspire against him and eventually show themselves to be exactly as Christ is saying, those who are going to reject the word of God as they conspire against him. But just consider for a moment, what would have repentance looked like for them? 
as Jesus is speaking, what would repentance look like? I mean, he's calling out their pride. He's calling out their love for money and greed. He's calling out their desire for human approval. All these, all these sorts of things which are tied in with what he's calling out. I think repentance would have looked like for them to realize he's right. You know, the righteousness that I have in myself, these standards that I've constructed, these excuses I've made, they're all nothing. I actually need a savior. I need to listen and learn from this teacher. And the ways I've gone in aren't going to bear life. And if they would have done that, we know Christ. That he, he would have been the one who would have accepted and loved and taught them. But what we see is that their hardness of heart keeps them from doing that. And so the question that we really want to ask as we, as we approach this passage this morning is, is when we're confronted with Jesus, how do we respond? We know that God opposes the proud. And we see this opposition here as Christ is opposing the proud. We also know that he gives grace to the humble. In our lives, we say, you know, I don't really need Jesus. Things are going pretty well. I have a good career, good family, good home. Th things are going well. I don't really need Christ in my life. Or have, have we constructed a system of righteousness that really doesn't have a place for Christ and his righteousness, where it seems unnecessary? I was talking with my brother, Doug, about this passage, and one thing that he said that I thought was really helpful is that if we're going to have a system of righteousness that we look down on others from and makes us feel good about ourselves, it's going to have to be about something as silly and trite as hand-washing. Silly and trite is hand-washing. It's something like, you know, I, I see that something was left out here on this lawn, but I clean up after my dog. Something like, you know, they asked me to round up to the nearest dollar at the grocery store, and I did it. I'm, I'm a pretty good person. I, I recycle. I reduce, recycle, and reuse. I'm a good person. Or I voted for the right candidate. I, I'm on the right side of history here. I got my vaccination. Or I didn't get my vaccination. These small things that we begin to build up of these expectations, I'm a good person. Or at least, maybe I'm not perfect, but I'm not like, I'm not like them. I'm not like these other people. I may struggle with various issues, but I'm not like one of those self-righteous hypocrites. I'm not like, I mean, have you seen, have you seen our culture around us? Have you seen the ways that, that people express immorality? I'm not like that. Whatever it is, we begin to build up this system of righteousness where we make ourselves feel good at the expense of others. And so we condemn other people to justify ourselves. Or in the final verdict, we ultimately condemn Christ to justify ourselves. And I think that's actually exactly what we see playing out in this story. That when confronted with Christ and his righteousness, they don't listen, they don't hear. They would rather reject him then be challenged and humbled by what he's saying. But Christ opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. So let's think for a moment. How does humility look different? What humility is is essentially saying this. When we look at our life, our accomplishments, our righteousness, whatever we may have, we say, you know, I could be considered in the eyes of people here the best person. I give generously, I, I care a lot, I, I'm involved, I'm involved in all the issues of justice that I should be, you know, check it all off the list. And this is, was the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3. He said, you know, all these things I've done, 
I have the righteousness in the eyes of the world. But he says, I consider it as nothing compared to the righteousness of Christ. To be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And then be willing to be taught and changed and transformed by Christ as we walk with him. One of the things that really sticks out as we look at this passage as well is just the fact that Jesus is angry. I mean, if you read through the woes, you realize that Jesus is angry. He's upset. And when looking at that, we can often wonder, why is Jesus so angry? There's the loving Jesus, and then there's the angry Jesus. And and what's going on here? Author and scholar Dane Ortland gives insight into this. I think what he says is really helpful. He's actually talking about Matthew 23 in this part. But he talks about how Jesus is so upset because there's these religious PhDs. Those who ought to be the religious leaders caring for the people, but instead they're using them to build themselves up. But he says this about Jesus. Jesus wanted to gather the people under his wings the way a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings for maternal protection. So what's the heart of Jesus in this passage? I think we see the heart of Jesus and that his anger is not a sign of his lack of love, but actually of the ferocity of his love. Because he's being protective. I mean, what mother, what father doesn't go into the protective mode when they see their child in this great danger? When they see someone who's seeking to do their child harm, what mom doesn't become a mama bear and defend her child? What shepherd like Christ, what shepherd wouldn't become fierce to fend off the wolves? And so what actually we see in this passage, the, the anger of Jesus towards these religious leaders who are leading people astray is not a sign of Jesus' lack of love, but it's actually showing us the depths of his love, his protective love. And even I want you to know, if you've been in a spot where you've been abused, neglected, even by spiritual leaders, that is something that Christ sees and he knows, and that angers him. He loves, and he knows. And Christ opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And what we see in this passage is Christ the fierce protector of his people. And so as we read this passage, it actually gives us greater confidence to trust in Jesus, because we see the ferociousness of his love. And I think it's important to remember what's in the background in all of this. In Luke, we're on this narrative. And as Jesus is going forward, he's going to the cross. If there's any doubt, if there's any uncertainty about the heart of Christ, we only need to remember that when Christ is expressing his frustration and his anger at these religious leaders who are leading people in all sorts of directions, laying burdens on them, he is desiring their good and their rest and their salvation. He desires our good and our rest and our salvation. And he's going to show that because he himself is willing to go all the way to the cross, to be crucified and abused and neglected, to be shamed for the salvation of his people. He's not unacquainted with suffering or grief, but he himself is going to go to the cross to save his people, and he cares. So I think as we read this passage, the encouragement we can have is that as we trust in Christ, that we know that he is a fierce protector for his people. 
and that he will stop at nothing, even the cost of his own life, to bring his people home. As we end our service today, I'm just going to ask you if you would stand with me in prayer. Lord, we see in this passage the anger and the justice of Christ. And it, it's humbling. It really is humbling. Lord, because we, we have not lived up to this standard in our own lives. And so I pray for the humility to know your grace to know that you are a forgiving God, to know that you're one who can transform us. And I pray that we would trust in Christ. Pray that if there'd be any barriers or hindrances towards that this morning, that you would speak and work and move. And I pray that even as we come away from this passage, that we remember that Christ is the great protector and lover of his people. I thank you that you will make all things right and that you see and love and care. Lord, I pray that we fall at your feet in worship and in reliance upon your grace this morning. I pray you'd strengthen people as they go out today. We'd be reminded of your faithfulness and goodness and be filled with your hope as we go forward. That we truly would be a church that's known as friend of sinners. And the men and women here as they go into their communities will be known as friends of sinners. Praise things in Jesus' name. Amen.